sermons that we've been working through together. Next week, we're going to pause this series in order to celebrate Mother's Day, so please plan to uh, come, and if possible, bring mom with you. We want to recognize all of our mothers next Sunday with a gift and a special message to honor them, so looking forward to that. And then the following Sunday is Pentecost Sunday, which is one of my favorite Sundays all year because we get to talk about the events specifically in Acts chapter 2, the birth of the New Testament church and the bestowal of the Holy Spirit and baptism and consequent spiritual gifts that give us the power that we need to carry out the Great Commission. And so a lot of great stuff coming over the next couple weeks. And today, we're going to continue our series on No Greater Love by focusing on another aspect or attribute of God's love. Uh, We started out with the steadfastness of His love, which is really what all of the rest of these stem out of. And then last week, we looked at grace and mercy as components of His steadfast love. And today, we're going to talk about justice, okay? His love is just. It may feel strange at first, um, or seem contradictory, to talk about God's mercy and God's justice under the same heading as His love, but it's not only very appropriate, in fact, the two go hand in hand when studying the love of God. Both His mercy and grace and His justice are very much a part of His steadfast love, as we'll see. In Zechariah chapter 7, verses 9 and 10 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, that's justice. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. James 3.17 says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness, this is justice, again, we'll see in a moment, is sown in peace by those who make peace. Okay? It's just two examples of many in Scripture where we see justice and mercy tied together in instructions for how we are to live. And as well, so very often in Scripture, we find God's justice being discussed in the context of His steadfast love. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 36, and we'll put the Scripture up here on the screen. And we'll read verses 5 through 10. Someone bought me, uh, us, the church, this wonderful lapel microphone that I've been using the last couple of weeks. And I love it because I can read out of my Bible. It's the same words I put in my notes. So I don't know why it matters, but I like holding my Bible. And the little clip that holds it on my shirt broke. So Butch has ordered us some more clips. So I'm a little sad today because I have to hold the microphone. So bear with me. Psalm 36, verses 5 through 10 says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. There's a third day song that has those words in it for those of you that listen to third day. These first couple verses are significant and profound in and of themselves. Okay, The word righteousness in verse 6 in the original Hebrew language is the exact same word for justice. And they're used interchangeably throughout the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. The Hebrew word is tzedakah, which means righteousness or justice. Okay, so justice is righteousness. Righteousness is justice. And in this passage and many others, they're one and the same. And then the word judgment, also in verse 6, is the Hebrew word mishpat, which also refers to justice. So here we have David writing about God's love and faithfulness and justice in the same breath. And notice he starts out this stanza with, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. 
Okay? So his love extends all the way up to the heavens so that everything else that we talk about here is covered by his love. Everything else is underneath his love, underneath the heavens. So your righteousness or your justice is like the mountains of God. The mountains are under the heavens. Your judgments are like the great deep. Again, the seas are under the heavens. So his motivation toward us, his disposition toward us, even in the context of justice and judgment, is born out of his love for us and covered by his love for us. Okay, that's a significant a literary point there. Uh, verse 7, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness or justice, tzedakah, okay, to the upright of heart. So his justice is closely tied to his love for us. It's an attribute, in fact, of his steadfast love. A.W. Tozer is one of my favorite authors, wrote, God's compassion flows out of his goodness, and his goodness without justice is not goodness. God spares us because he is good, but he could not be good if he were not just. Okay? So God's love for us and his justice fit together perfectly. But even more than that, justice isn't something that is simply attached to him, to the Father. To be more specific, it is a part of who he is. It's in fact at the very core uh, of who he is, love and justice together. Psalm 97, 1 and 2 says, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Okay, and as a side note, the biblical authors would often use the nations around the Mediterranean Sea to refer to all of the nations. Okay, hence the, the reference to the many coastlands. Verse 2, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. So justice is woven into the very fabric of the nature of God. It is the foundation of his throne. Again, Tozer writes, All God's reasons come from within his uncreated being. Nothing has entered the being of God from eternity. Nothing has been removed and nothing has been changed. Justice, when used of God, is a name we give to the way God is. Nothing more. And when God acts justly, he is not doing so to conform to an independent criterion, but simply acting like himself in a given situation. As gold is an element in itself and can never change nor compromise, but is gold wherever it is found, so God is God, always, only, fully God, and can never be other than he is. Everything in the universe is good to the, to the degree it conforms to the nature of God and evil as it fails to do so. God is his own self-existent principle of moral equity, and when he sentences evil men on rewards on the, or rewards the righteous, excuse me, he simply acts like himself from within, uninfluenced by anything that is not himself. That's a very thorough, if not succinct, way of saying justice isn't just something attached to God. Okay, It is rather a part of who God is. It is a part of his very nature, just as is his love. Okay, And just one more note as we're defining justice. Justice is not equivalent to fairness. Not the same thing, not by a long shot. Okay, they're two very different qualities. God exacted justice on the cross when Jesus was crucified. 
Justice for mankind's sin was then satisfied. It was served in Christ's death. But it was hardly fair. Jesus was innocent. He was blameless. He did nothing wrong and he did nothing to deserve death, let alone crucifixion, right? Which is a particularly cruel and lengthy form of suffering unto death. Nonetheless, justice was satisfied at the cross upon the death of the only perfect man that has ever walked this earth. That's what makes his crucifixion so horrendous, so offensive, and so beautiful to the believer. God is just. That does not mean he's fair. The trouble we run into sometimes, and particularly in this society, is that we want life to be fair. We want equity. We want all things to be equal. But God isn't always fair. Rather, he is always righteous. He is always just. Okay. If you look at the life of Job, Joseph, most of the prophets, what happened in their lives was rarely fair. But it was always righteous. It was always just, at least on God's part. The point is, he knows what we can handle. He knows what we need. And in his very person is the promise of justice and righteousness. Okay? So, that said, what does God's justice mean for us today? How do we apply that to our lives? Well, number one, justice means there is rule of law. Okay? In Exodus 20, we see God giving Moses the Ten Commandments and the Old Covenant laws, which... As a side note, we're just the covenant laws at that point because obviously there was no new covenant yet. And in chapter 24, he confirms the covenant with Moses. This law was to guide and direct the people of Israel. It was the creed, the code by which they were to live. The law represented justice, God's righteousness. Okay, And as we've discussed over the past couple of weeks... All of this old covenant, all of the, the law and the prophets, it all pointed to Christ and the new covenant prophetically. Okay, so we won't go back through all that. And it's not at all that once Jesus came and died and was resurrected that the law went away and we now just live without standards. That's postmodernism. There, that's where our society, the, the common worldview in our society today, in Western society, is postmodern. It says that this, what's right for me is right for me. What's right for you is right for you. I'm not to judge you. You don't judge me. We're all good. It's just peace, love, and happiness. There's no standard, okay? It's whatever we feel inside. That's postmodernism. To the contrary, Jesus said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, Matthew 5, 17. And we live under the new covenant now, okay? Not the old, which is the law of love, written on our minds and on our hearts, rather than on tablets of stone, he says. So this was first prophesied hundreds of years earlier by Jeremiah, the prophet, in chapter 31. 31 through 33, he said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, which is we're talking about now, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So no longer is the covenant an external uh, ruling document. It's a document that dwells within us, the law of love, the law of Christ, that dwells within us when we become believers. So the new pro covenant promise was then confirmed in the Greek Bible, the New Testament, in Hebrews 8.10 and 2 Corinthians 3.3. 3. So the covenant law between God and his people is now fulfilled in Christ. 
which means we're to completely obey Christ and all that he taught us and all that he commanded and all that he represented. And of course that means including obeying his voice today, which is the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. It's amazing to me how many Christians, pastors, believe God doesn't speak today. That all we have is, is this as a document to refer to. Well, that's not what it says. God speaks today through his Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And we do wise. In fact, we, we won't make it if we don't hear the voice of God within us. Okay? We're going to talk about this on Pentecost Sunday more. Alright? So, if you're a believer and a follower of Christ, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. He speaks today. And by the way, his voice speaking to you today will never be contrary to his word. His voice and his word will never contradict. God's not schizophrenic. He doesn't write one thing and say another thing. It will always be in agreement. So if you think you're hearing from God and it doesn't agree with the word of God, you're probably not hearing from God. In fact, I promise you, you're not. It's a good litmus test when you think maybe God's speaking to you. And to further make the point that justice then is a part of God's love and a part of the new covenant that we now live under, Romans 13, 8 through 10 says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Okay, the law represents justice. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. Here it is. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. If you're ever confused in life about what the right thing to do is, and, and I realize this is a simplification of some of your situations, but you can be assured if it does not involve loving people, putting others first, loving God, putting Him first, it is not God's will. Because love is the ultimate fulfillment of the law. That's why he said love covers a multitude of sins. We can screw up a lot of things in life. But if we put love first, we're fulfilling the law in our own life. Okay? So God's people, those who call him Lord, experience justice or righteousness through God's mercy, grace, salvation, redemption. We covered that last week. We cannot earn salvation by our works. We're not justified by our works. We're justified by grace through faith. Romans 3, 24 through 28 tells us that. Of course, faith in Christ, we have to live by faith, faith in Christ, in whom we find the law of love. But even though we're not justified or made righteous by our actions, we are still commanded to live righteously, to live justly, okay? That means that out of our love for God and for each other, we will adhere to the teachings of Christ. We'll obey our parents. We'll show compassion to the poor. We'll respect our earthly authorities. We'll do our best to honor each other and be a neighbor to those who are hurting and oppressed. We'll give all that we have to the work that he set before us and we'll spend our lives discipling others and being discipled. You know, the Ten Commandments didn't go away when Jesus showed up. They still apply today. Christ came to fulfill the law. So when we live in him and allow the Holy Spirit to live in us, we have the ultimate fulfillment of the law dwelling within us. And if we allow him to, he guides us through life and empowers us to fulfill the law of love. You cannot do it on your own. It is only through Christ working in us. Okay? The rule of law for our lives is a code. It's a creed. It all that Christ taught us and commanded us is the standard by which we live, motivated by our love for him. 
and for each other. So this all goes back to steadfast love, covenant love that we talked about two weeks ago. It's the love that Jonathan and David had for one another. It's the love that Christ has for the church, for you and I. And it's the love that we're all commanded to live by. Okay, so justice means there's rule of law. It's the rule of law that we live by, the law of love. And it also means that there is discipline. This message isn't particularly fun, I'm sorry. If we were all perfect, we wouldn't need to be disciplined because we would inherently already be disciplined, wouldn't we? Unfortunately, we're definitely not perfect. Romans 3.23 tells us that. And therefore, at times, we all require correction in our lives. Discipline. If we're to live righteously or justly. This too is a function of love, although it doesn't always feel like it. But when we are disciplined, when correction is brought into our lives, it is because we are loved. We discipline our children because we love them. Right? One of the worst possible acts of cruelty we could ever impose upon our children is zero discipline. The worst thing you can do for a kid, you can ruin a kid's life by never disciplining them. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 23, 13 and 14, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. That is to say, you will save him from hell. Those are strong words. Proverbs 13, 24 says, whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. So if you love him, you will discipline him. Okay, Discipline is a function of justice, which is a function of love. So how do we receive discipline? Okay, Three ways. I'll go through them quickly as I can. First is self-discipline. That's discipline that we impose upon ourselves. Okay, So turn to 1 Peter 1, and we'll camp here for a minute. We'll read verses 13 through 23. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 23. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay? The first step in self-discipline is preparing your mind for action. That is to say, don't be mentally lazy when it comes to resisting the temptations that we're faced with daily in this life. We can take life as it comes, or we can be prepared for action, always ready to be a witness to give a testimony to God's work in our lives. Always prepared to resist the temptations of this world. How? By being prepared for action. That means time in prayer. Significant time spent in prayer daily. Listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life. The more you pray, and, and not just when I say pray, you know, prayer is communication. It's a two-way street. We're going to talk about prayer in a few weeks. It's not just a litany of needs or wants to the Lord. That can be part of it, making petitions known to the Lord, but it's also listening, being still, listening to the voice of the Lord. The more you do that, the more you will begin to recognize His voice. He says, my sheep hear my voice. He's the shepherd. Okay? Listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life. Meditating on scriptures daily with an expectation for action. Again, it's more than just reading the Bible. It's meditating on the Bible, on the scriptures, on the word. Okay? And ultimately knowing that our hope is not the same destination in this world, in this lifetime. Our hope is realized at the revelation of Jesus Christ in the last days. Okay, as we'll see later in this passage, this world that we're in now is a temporary holding place. It's a temporary home. So we're keeping our hopes set on our eternal destination with Christ. Keeps our focus on that which is transcendent of the daily struggles and temptations of this life that we face. 
So be sober-minded and ready for action in everything that we do, focused on our future hope. It's probably a silly example, but I'm trying to discipline myself to eat less food. When I stuff myself to capacity when I eat, that's gluttony and that's a sin. And I found that if I just breeze through my day with no plan for healthy eating or any thought given to meal portions, I'll potentially eat whatever I have opportunity to eat. There's no, there's no discipline there. That's being lazy. That's the opposite of being prepared for action. But I found that when I plan my meals ahead of time, which means preparation, and I think about the places I'm going to be in a given day and the people I'll meet with as a pastor often over meals, I plan to go to particular places that, where I know I can get better options or for lunch or for dinner, healthier food. I'm preparing myself for action. I'm disciplining myself to eat less or to eat smarter. You can apply that principle to just about any area of your life. The point is to be prepared for action, keeping our hope fixed on what is to come. It's key to exercising self-discipline, okay? So be prepared to minister to someone every morning when you wake up and your feet hit the floor. Don't get lulled into believing that you were intended for, all that you were intended for in this life was mediocrity. You were intended for so much more. The fact is God has greatness written into the plan for your life. He says it in scripture. But you have culpability. Because he won't force it on you. You have to be prepared. Sober minded. Ready to do what is necessary. So what does that mean for you? If you seek his will for your life. I promise you you'll find out. But it's not a five minute process. It's a lifetime journey of pursuing Christ. But then you have to be willing to act, ready for action. What that meant for me and my family was completely walking away from our former life, our lifestyle, our comforts, our standard of living into a great unknown, I can tell you. And I haven't taken much time to tell you some of the stories from the past four years, going to Alaska, selling everything, and coming back. And I will sometime, but there were unbelievable adventures and lives radically transformed through the ministry that he's given us in that process. But I can tell you, there hasn't been a dull moment right up until today. God has greatness written into your story from before you were born. And he's holding it out before you for the taking. And you have to ask yourself, am I willing to take that leap? Am I willing to, to take the risk to live for Christ? Be sober-minded, be prepared for action. Seek his will. Okay, let's continue in our text. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In other words, don't act like you did before you were saved. You're a new creature in Christ, and we're supposed to act like it. Verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. What does he mean? What is exile? It's our life here on earth. Okay, again, because we're not at home in this world. And during our time here, we're supposed to conduct ourselves with fear, which is very much a part of self-discipline. What does that mean? What does it mean to be afraid? It's not fear of the person of God. It's fear of his discipline and displeasure with us when we don't discipline ourselves. And I want to tell you something. We've watered this down in church to say, oh, well, no, we don't fear God. It just means awe and reverence. No, it doesn't. It means be afraid. Be very afraid. 
every instance where some human being in Scripture stood and a being of God, Jesus, uh, showed up, an angel showed up, what happened? They fell over as they were dead and trembled. They were afraid. If Jesus were to show up in our presence right now, physically, I'm pretty sure we'd all be on the floor, shaking in our boots. Be afraid. It is the awestruck wonder that we should have when we all consider the full weight of who God is and our relationship to Him, but we are commanded to fear His discipline. Right? Okay, let's continue on. We'll talk more about this. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, or for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Alright, self-discipline means obedience to Christ, who is the truth, by the way, John 14, 6. Again, that includes all that he taught us. And then to finish this passage, why do all of this? Why all the self-discipline? Why, why all the instruction about how to live righteously or justly? What is all of that supposed to produce in us? Verse 22, for a sincere brotherly love... Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love and justice go hand in hand. We discipline ourselves so that we can rightly, justly function in love for one another. Okay, you're getting the idea now. Justice and love fit together perfectly, all right? So there's self-discipline, and I'm pushing through this as quick as I can. There's self-discipline, and then there is body discipline, all right? This is discipline within the body of Christ, within the church. When you look at Jesus' teachings throughout the New Testament, when he was speaking to the lost, it was generally a message of love and grace and mercy. When he was speaking to the religious people, the church people, it was generally about correction and discipline. The same is true for the Apostle Paul. When he encountered the lost, he generally told them about the good news of the gospel. When he wrote letters to the churches, there was a whole lot of correction and discipline in there. It applies to Peter and the other disciples. You read through the New Testament. The same should be true of us. Okay, When we encounter the world, the lost, we should not be judging the world. That's God's job. We should be focusing on the love of Christ and the good news of the gospel. When we encounter each other, we should be focused on the love of Christ and discipleship. We are to judge one another within the church. Believers have already accepted the good news. We need to move on to greater works, a deeper walk with Christ, discipleship, which includes discipline and correction when it is needed, okay? Nobody wants to talk about church discipline anymore. And really, honestly, who can blame them? There have been so many abuses by the church and church leaders in our lifetime. No one is really interested in being corrected in the church anymore, and I understand that. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, the priests and prophets, the church people, the religious leaders, often bore the brunt of judgment and punishment and discipline from God because they were supposed to be bringing a message of truth from God, but instead... So often they twisted his words and deceived the people and they caused them to stumble. Lamentations 4, 11 through 16 is, a, is an example of that. There are many. I don't think it's going to be any different 
for the religious leaders of today when we encounter judgment. Those who have misled people, misrepresented God, and caused the body to stumble. And all you have to do is turn on the television late at night and see that happening. And I'm not saying that all TV preachers are bad. But there is so much heresy going on in the church today on television. Um, misleading people. I believe that the church leaders that mislead people will, just as they did in the Old Testament, receive the harshest punishment and judgment. Matthew 18.6 says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. How motivated do you think I am every Sunday to get this right? This passage scares me. And causes me to go to great lengths to ensure that I'm teaching the truth as honestly and accurately as I possibly can. I can tell you, I labor over these sermons because of Matthew 18, 6. I shudder when I think about this verse. Take it very seriously. That's God's discipline, which we're going to talk about next. But even though the church hasn't always gotten it right... Body discipline, discipline within and amongst the church is very biblical and in fact it's needed. But far too often it's avoided in the church today. Both by church leaders because we don't want to scare people off. And by church members because they're not interested in subjecting themselves to any more authority in their lives than they have to. Just a few weeks ago we worked through the middle part of Matthew 18. Which very clearly spells out how we are to execute discipline and correction within the church. So I won't go back through that today. But if you just read verse 15 in Matthew 18, it says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. This is talking about discipline in the church. The motivation for church discipline is always restoration when possible. Okay? Carried out in love, the love that we're supposed to have for one another. And we should be open to it in our lives. I have church leadership that I answer to. Not because they write my paycheck. I don't get a paycheck. I answer to them because I've willingly submitted myself to spiritual authority by God's design. In the New Testament, the apostles appointed elders or pastors. The pastors appointed deacons who served the membership. <clears throat> and in this hierarchical system, the church functioned ultimately with Jesus as the head and everyone else functioning under their proper authority. Okay, So I have a district superintendent and others in our organization who function in an apostolic role. We don't call them apostles. But they have an apostolic ministry. They oversee new church plants. That's what the apostles did. They planted the churches. So like this one. These guys are my earthly authority and in a very real sense my spiritual authority. They're my covering. Okay, I've willingly submitted myself to their authority. I'm not employed by them, but I serve them by choice. This church will eventually have a board or a group of deacons who will function under the authority of the pastor. Not by coercion, but by choice and so on. And in order for the system to work, we all have to be willing to answer to spiritual authority when needed. Otherwise, it's every man for himself. And that's not how church was designed to function in the New Testament, okay? The problem with authority in the church is when it goes unchecked. When, when any part of the structure lacks accountability, you're playing with fire. So the key is to maintain proper accountability. Read Paul's letters to the churches. He clearly reminded them many times of his authority over them, over the church. And yet, at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, when all of these apostles and elders and church leaders came together 
including Paul. We see James, an elder of the church in Jerusalem, the elder among elders, making a final judgment about a very divisive issue involving ministry to the Gentiles. Okay, Paul submitted to that ruling. There were times when church leadership sent Paul out with instructions, told him what to do on his journey. Okay, Paul submitted to leadership. Everyone in the New Testament church structure answered to someone. They answered to each other. Everyone was accountable to someone else. And so it is with Upcountry Church. Okay? We haven't started leadership training and leadership meetings yet because we're still getting our feet under us as a new church. But that's coming. It's coming soon. There are policies and procedural requirements here that provide for accountability. That's the point. So that nothing gets out of balance. And procedures and policies aren't in place because anyone wants to lord authority over anyone else. They're in place because we want to always have proper accountability within the church. Okay, And at times that means discipline and correction. All right, Self-discipline is always preferred. And if you guys can give me a few more minutes, I'm, I'm trying to get you out of here on time. I promise you next week you will be out at 12 to take your mom to lunch. All right? But I have a few more pages, and I want to finish this. Uh, it's, a, it's a hard subject, okay? Self-discipline is always preferred. Self-control should always be exercised. But when we fail to discipline ourselves, the church and the church leaders are instructed to step in and lovingly bring correction, discipline to the offending brother or sister. When all of that has failed... When we've tried to do it ourselves and it didn't work, or we didn't try, when the church leaders have come and we don't respond, when all of that has failed, we arrive at door number three God's discipline. This is discipline that we receive directly from God when we fail to discipline ourselves, when we refuse to heed correction from within the body of Christ. This is the discipline that we should fear. As we saw in 1 Peter 1.17 and throughout Scripture, okay, all throughout the Old Testament, the people of God were given instructions on how to live and they were given the freedom to obey or disobey. Self-discipline was always an option. When they failed to be sober-minded, prepared for action, when they failed to be self-controlled, God sent them prophets. This was body discipline. Second phase, door number two, the prophets warned the people over and over and over and over again. And lest you think God is a big angry guy in the Old Testament waiting to wipe out the people of, of that time at every turn, just read the prophetic books of the Old Testament before you pass judgment and read them through. He made Jeremiah and Jonah and Ezekiel and all their buddies do some of the absolute weirdest and most difficult pleadings with the people to try and spare them from his discipline. He pulled out all the stops. Ezekiel had to lay on his left side for 390 days, over a year, and only eat a bitter bread rationed out to about 8 ounces a day to symbolize the suffering that was coming to God's people if they refused to repent, chapter 4. Okay, We don't know if that was all day or, or not. The point is, the prophets were like these suffering street performers, trying everything to convince the people to change their evil lifestyles, given every opportunity. There were dramatic displays of acting out and fasting and wailing and tearing clothes, pleading and warning after warning by the prophets to give God's chosen people every single opportunity to repent and receive correction. After all of that, after countless opportunities to obey the Father, God would finally bring judgment and correction and discipline as a last resort to satisfy justice. 
And it was often very harsh because everything else had been tried and failed. But even at that, when he had every prerogative to completely destroy the people who sinned in every possible vile, heinous, perverted, detestable, hateful way directed toward God and each other, even after all of that, he still, out of his love, would leave a remnant alive and he would restore them upon repentance. That is grace and mercy and love in the midst of justice. Okay? God, if he's truly perfect, and all the hallmarks assigned to him in scripture are true, he must be a just God. Otherwise, the entire gospel is a farce. He is a just God, but even in exercising his justice, there's always mercy and grace, okay? That should bring you comfort. And I will say that my preference is to never have to reach the point where I have to receive his punishment, his justice directly. I would rather take it through self-control, which isn't always easy, or through body discipline, which can be even harder to take, but on the whole, it has to be much less painful and far less frightening than direct judgment from God, okay? So justice means rule of law, it means discipline, it also means payment. Payment must be made for justice to be served, to be satisfied. Upon serving time in prison, prisoners are said to have paid their debt to society. That may be debatable, I don't know. But the point is that justice demands a payment. Okay? Again, Old Testament punishment didn't always seem fair, but it was always just. Payment or atonement had to be made continually for the sins of the people. So innocent blood was shed, animals were sacrificed on an altar to make payment for justice to be satisfied. We see it as early as Genesis chapter 3, where the Lord sacrifices an animal to make skins, symbolically covering the sin of Adam and Eve. Noah sacrificed clean animals and birds in Genesis chapter 8 to make atonement for the sin of mankind. And so that pattern continues throughout the Old Testament. And then, of course, in the New Testament, we see Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, the ultimate justice for sin. Innocent blood was shed for the sins of all mankind for the last time. Praise God. Justice was served in one harrowing, courageous, selfless act of ultimate love. Justice was satisfied. Jesus Christ paid a price that you and I could not pay. He went where we could not go and he did what we could not do. And now we who call upon the name of the Lord enjoy the privileges of kinship with Jesus Christ. His word says we're heirs with him for eternity. That certainly isn't fair. But I'm so thankful for justice, born out of love from the Father to us. Justice demands payment, and so Jesus stepped in, and he paid our debt for us. The question for us today then, and it's my final point, how, how will we respond because justice demands a response, okay? Isaiah 61.8 says that God loves justice, and so therefore we should also. Living righteously or justly, living for God, pleases Him. In fact, there is no substitute for justice. Even hollow religious activity is no match for true justice. Okay, let's turn to Isaiah 1, and we'll quickly read verses 10 through 17. Isaiah 1, it says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? 
I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. You see, in other words, your empty religious gestures, you're going to church every Sunday. You're giving a little bit in the offering. You're doing a Bible study. If that's all it is and it's empty and hollow... If there's no justice, if there's no righteousness in your life, it means nothing to him. He's not interested in religious gesture or tradition. He wants your heart. Micah 6.1.8 says essentially the same thing. So what is the response that the Lord is looking for? First, I can tell you it's through repentance. Verse 16 says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil deeds from before my eyes. In other words, repent. This is always the first and best response to the application of justice in our lives. Repentance leads to redemption. Okay? Let's look at Daniel 9, uh, starting on verse 3, and we'll, we'll just read through verse 7. This is Daniel, who by reading Jeremiah, who's during the exile, he, he's reading Jeremiah, part of the Old Testament canon that had been collected up to that point. He now realizes that God's people are nearing the end of their exile because Jeremiah refers to the desolation of Jerusalem lasting 70 years and Daniel understood that that time was almost now over. Okay? Shortly after, this is shortly after the uh, Babylonian Empire was overthrown by the Medes and the Persians in about 539 BC. And Daniel is praying this prayer of confession for himself and on behalf of the people. Okay, verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We've sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the peoples of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you've driven them because of the treachery that they've committed against you. Okay? Verse 7 here is key. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. This is where mercy and justice collide. It's called redemptive theology which teaches that mercy does not become effective toward a man until justice has done its work. What is the sign that justice has done its work? The answer is repentance. Okay, repentance is always the first and correct response to God's justice in our lives. We can get angry with God. We can resent what he's done in our lives. We can try and make it on our own. But if God's justice is in fact being realized in our lives, we will never fully realize his mercy until we repent. 
There's no way around it. We have to crucify our pride, humble ourselves before God, and repent. There is no other way to experience His mercy and ultimate redemption. But unfortunately, repentance has become a very unpopular message in our churches today, hasn't it? Again, A.W. Tozer says it this way, God's justice stands forever against the sinner in utter severity. The vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. It hushes their fears and allows them to practice all pleasant forms of iniquity while death draws every day nearer and the command to repent goes unregarded. As responsible moral beings, we dare not so trifle with our eternal future. So let me encourage you today a little bit as your pastor. And, and believe me, <laughs> I have to give myself this pep talk from time to time. I've received it from others. If you're struggling and you just can't seem to get to a place of peace, a place of joy, or a place of love in your life, it may not be because of sin in your life, okay? And there are different reasons why we suffer and, and can't get ahead and can't make progress. And sometimes those reasons have nothing to do with our sin, okay? So please understand that. You have to seek discernment in your own life from God if you're struggling. But by all means... While seeking discernment, ask the Lord to reveal to you any transgression, any sin, any wrongdoing, any wrong thoughts or attitudes. And if He reveals anything at all to you, repent. Humble yourself and repent. In that moment, He will flood your life with mercy and grace and redemption. There are sins that we know. You know, we walk around and we know sometimes something in our life isn't right. We know what we're doing wrong. There are other times when we don't realize. And you begin to pray and ask God, reveal to me. And He'll show you things in your own heart that need to be corrected. Okay? And then finally, and I really am closing here, uh, the second part of our response to justice is righteous living. Okay, Romans chapter 12 through 16 is a textbook for how we should respond to God. It's all about living righteously. And we don't have time to read it all. But let's just read the first two verses okay, of chapter 12. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. It's what we just talked about. What is good and acceptable and perfect. The only appropriate response to justice is repentance and then continued righteous living so that we can avoid falling back into a pattern of sinful living, which is what we see over and over and over again with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Okay? That's there for us to read and learn from, not to repeat. All right? So often we see God exacting justice. And when we do... You need to know that it's always born out of His steadfast love for us so that we might be redeemed unto Him. That's what we see at the cross. Justice at its harshest, most unfair and brutal. And at the very same moment, a love that the world has never known. A love so intense that it allowed the only perfection that has ever existed in this world to be shattered torn apart and killed for you and me. A love that has forever transformed millions of people. 
the same love that is available to each one of us today. Okay, would you bow your heads with me as we close?